Diana, and I love printing and design, typography and branding, books and publishing. I've traveled the world learning about trends to share with my students and with my readers. But I haven't forgotten where I started, writing papers about paper on paper. And now, I've created a podcast to share what I know with you. So, let's talk paper scissors. I was recently brushing up on my typographic news, as one is ought to do, and I came across a really excellent podcast called The Weekly Typographic. In this podcast, co-hosts Micah and Olivia give a rundown of helpful typographic resources, weekly type news, and deep dives into type history and type trends. It's good nerdy fun. I reached out to one half of the weekly typographic team, Olivia, after hearing one of her segments all about the huge impact that the Industrial Revolution had on the world of typography as we know it today. It was a super interesting conversation, and not being one to shy away from an opportunity, I emailed her to see if she would chat with me and share this information with Talk Paper Scissors listeners too. So just like your favorite crossover episode on TV, think The Jetsons and the Flintstones, or New Girl in Brooklyn Nine-Nine, or The Simpsons and 24, this is a crossover episode. As it pertains to geeky, typographic-focused podcasts, that is, but I'm here for it. In just a minute, you'll meet Olivia, who is awesome. In this conversation, we talk about the Industrial Revolution's impact on typography, as well as an exciting modern type revolution that we're in right now. She is joining us from New York, and as soon as she and I met via Zoom, I knew we were kindred spirits who both yearned to kern. Please tell us all about yourself, Olivia. So I'm Olivia Kane. Great to kind of introduce myself to everyone. So I guess I'm, I'll start from kind of the career side of things. I am a designer. I work full-time at Jones Knowles Ritchie, working on brand identity and packaging for a bunch of big brands globally. From before that, I kind of had a mixed bag of experience. I work in experiential design. I also worked in at Penguin and publication design. So um, I've always loved print design and, and has always like loved typography. So that's kind of that world. At some point I was thinking about becoming a type designer, but then I was like, I just like nerding out about type more than actually designing it. Um, so that's one side of things. Then the other side of my life is um, I'm the podcast co-host for the Weekly Typographic. And uh, that's a podcast that we record basically every week. We kind of do a rundown of the type and design news and then I do this section called the nerd alert which I kind of deep dive into these hidden pathways in graphic design history um, or maybe some buzzwords that we keep on hearing and doing a deep dive into those so um, that's that's what I'm that's what I'm up to over here in Brooklyn and Olivia you're so kind to come on here and share one of your nerd alerts and that's how I I well I found you because you are right up there in the world of of uh, when I when I type in typography, uh, that comes up. Your podcast comes up in Apple Podcasts, and I kind of poked around at it and went, "This is cool. This is fun." And I absolutely love, love, love specifically 
your nerd alert all about the Industrial Revolution's massive impact on typography as we know it today. So perhaps, can you speak to the way in which type moved from being merely functional to a greater focus on form? Absolutely. Um, This was a really fun segment to research and record. I think to start, I was like, "Ah, I don't know, like maybe there's something here. But I was like, I don't know if people are even interested in the Industrial Revolution. That's so long ago. It feels kind of like dusty. But like when I undusted this chapter in history and kind of discovered it, uh, it really like so mo- so monumental, so important for where we are today. So kind of like you were saying, um, t- the purpose of typography really shifted during this time. So the Industrial Revolution started in England in 1760, but then, you know, it really kind of blossomed in America during the 1800s. And so you know, the latter half of the 1700s into the 1800s is when we really see this shift. And the Industrial Revolution had an impact on every kind of way of life. So it had an impact impact on, you know, our society politically. People that had power were no longer the aristocrats. It kind of shifted power to the capitalists and the manufacturers. Um, the invention of the steam engine, as simple of a sentence as that is, it really did. It was an impetus for a lot of advanced technology. Um, and then in general, mentally, our kind of society was shifting. You know, we stopped that valuing kind of crafted uh, traditions and nature and stuff like that and spiritual value and a lot of uh, what we valued as a society shifted to material goods. So I kind of like starting there to be like, okay, here's our mindset. Here's our bigger picture of where we're entering. And so before the invention of the steam engine, before the Industrial Revolution, when all these technologies were rapidly changing, typography itself wasn't nearly as exciting as we kind of know it today. I mean, type was being used for broadsheets and, you know, printed material maybe from books. Uh, But other than that, it didn't have too much of a purpose. It wasn't being used for advertising. It wasn't being used really for like signage as we know it today. Um, it, it wasn't being used in any sort of entertainment media. It was really there just for function. You weren't even seeing typography that was larger than maybe, I don't know, 72 points. Like, And, and in that sense, you can see just how limiting it is. The demand for type was okay I want something that's legible that's readable that conveys information but it was really just that that's kind of where we kind of started and because of all these societal shifts it just exploded the possibility of what typography could be and um, its value in our society which is crazy to think about I mean typography is such a yeah such an important part of our daily lives just looking around this room I'm like This is kind of nerdy as well. But I see a Ninja Turtles comic framed on the wall. That is my husband's, not mine. But I mean, even the turtles (laughs) font, the turtles typeface is is something Mm -hmm. that, yeah, net like there was no need for the Ninja Turtles (laughs) before the Industrial Revolution or there was no Mm -hmm. need for advertising the way we know it today. So I'm curious to know... Mm What impact did the shift of this mass production during the Industrial Revolution really have on the world of typography? Are there specific shifts that are happening? Yes, absolutely. And there are specific shifts and there are just like really groundbreaking shifts. Uh, And I'll, I'll kind of go through some of them one by one. But 
the more that I dug into this research, the more I was like, oh my God, you can't, I can't believe like so much of what we know came from this movement. So, um, like we were talking about, the material shifted. So, you know, you see this shift from maybe books and broadsheets to posters, to magazine, editorial things, um, exactly, advertising, periodicals, um, communication. We're just at mass communication now. Um, And that is the big shift. And that is the impetus for things to change. Um, One thing that changes is that, you know, we start seeing type that's bigger than 72 points. Uh, I think during early Industrial Revolution times, uh, one of William Caslon's apprentices made type that was five centimeters high. And people were like, oh, my God, have you even seen such a thing? Yes. Right? Right? Uh, So that's hilarious. But, you know, we can think about inventions happening at a tiered way. So I kind of have, you know, three innovations that kind of branch out a little bit. So we have our first innovation um, was the fat face style. So before the Industrial Revolution, um, typography itself was shifting a little bit. You know, it was shifting from typography and letter forms that were based in calligraphic historical forms into something that was based off of a more mechanical gridded form. Um, That's like how we get from, you know, our our Nicholas Jensen's or Jensen Pro, I know still exists. We get from there to our Baskerville to our Bodoni. And to many people, Bodoni was like crazy. You had these thick thicks, these thin thins. Um, it seemed very unnatural to a lot of people. Well, if that seemed unnatural, the Industrial Revolution just really leaned into that. So we have the invention of fat faces, which is one of the first innovations, um, which is such a silly name when we say it out loud. But it is taking the idea of Bodoni of Dido and making those thick parts of the letters even thicker. It's just like monstrously thick. It was totally absurd for people to see. And the contrast between these thin thins and these super thick thicks actually had a purpose. It grabbed people's attention in a way that typography was never asked to do before this. And so people were like, oh, I have to make a poster for this new entertaining event happening or, you know, I have to do a magazine cover. Uh, Here, take a fat face. It'll grab people's attention. It will certainly make them notice. And that whole mentality shift around typography kind of just snowballed into so many, you know, other inventions. You know, also in the 1800s, really significant um, is the invention of Egyptian typefaces, or sometimes they're called slab serifs or antiques. Um, You know, this is when the weight of the letter forms are actually quite even throughout. And uh, instead of the serifs kind of being a decorative element, they were sometimes the same thickness as the actual letters themselves. And so, again, if we can imagine what slab serifs look like in our day-to-day, we think of like Rockwell or even Clarendon, um, they have a presence to them. They have um, quite eye-catching existence in, you know, our general visual landscape. And so that is also a continuation of this idea that we want type not just to be uh, kind of a visual representation of a phonetic alphabet. We want it to actually be an image itself. And certainly that is something that I think we as designers think about constantly these days. But back then it was like, wow, this is this is so new. And, you know, I think when type designers had this grasp of what people wanted, they just really kept on going with it. We see the invention of Tuscan letter forms, which are letters with bifurcating or branching serifs. You can think of like Wild West posters. Those were really kind of 
you know, also led to dimensional fonts and shaded fonts and fonts with inline strokes and ornaments all over the place. Um, I think people sometimes, you know, look down on the Industrial Revolution because it didn't value craft. People were trying to make as many typefaces as possible and keep up with the times. Um, But wow, like I can't even imagine a world without things like slab serifs and Tuscan letters and decorative letter forms. You know, those are so integral into, you know, how we communicate as a society today. And it's something that was just starting back then. Um, And then, you know, the third invention that really blew my mind is sans serifs. We don't think about sans serifs having to have been invented at some time. We almost take them for granted now being like, oh, yeah. You know, I recently read that the majority of the typography on the web is sans serif, um, which means that we're actually being exposed to more sans serif typefaces than serif typefaces. And I think that's actually uh, is a recent reversal of roles with those two categories. So I love the fact that the sans serif debut, um, it debuted in 1816 specimen book from William Caslon. And historians speculate that it was actually uh, supposed to look like an Egyptian typeface, so like a slab serif, except with the serifs chopped off. And so that makes sense how we kind of get to the sans serif. You know, it has quite a bit of a different structure from like serifs as we know it. And so it makes sense when you kind of think about it that way. But most people don't even know that history and don't know where the forms of our sans serifs come from. And I think um, having that context is like very eye opening. And then again, at the same time, you know, a lot of people thought these typefaces were just like plain old ugly because they weren't used to seeing them. They were making them very uncomfortable without the familiar letter forms. And so they created all these different names for it. They called them Dorics. They called them grotesques. They called them gothics. And then now we can kind of see how we have, you know, our Noya Haas grotesque or our Franklin gothic. It all kind of comes from a certain place. And so even just those three innovations, you know, I just talked about fat faces, slab serifs, and sand serif. That Those are three major categories, sans serif being especially major when we talk about what we're familiar with today. That's incredible. And the sans serif to that. So I was just looking around my computer screen because as soon as you said the fact that, I mean, most of the type we're looking at on screen is sans serif. So I'm looking around. I cannot find one serif typeface on my screen right now. I have (laughs) many things open and there's not one to be had. So, I mean, without... Uh, without the Industrial Revolution and all of those kind of evolutionary baby steps that took us, brought us to today, we may never have had sans serif. And then that, that leads me to believe, what else are we missing in our world of type that just hasn't happened yet, that's so major that could still happen? I don't know. I think about that too. I think actually there's, you know, not to, not to veer off too far off path, but there is so much interesting exploration with typography right now. I think we're at a really interesting different kind of revolution for the typography community where accessibility to education is so much greater than what it used to be. And that's certainly something that I just love seeing and um, I think is only doing so much good for the world in general to have visual landscapes, to have places across the world that see their culture reflected in their typography wasn't even a thing for a very long time, as sadly as that is. Um, So I think we're almost at like a little renaissance right now. You know, I see so many creative letter forms that I'm like, how do people think of these in the first place? Um, And people are getting inspired, you know, for so many ways. Back in the Industrial Revolution, people were getting inspired 
inspired because there was a market to be creating new fonts. Um, and, you know, that was certainly an impetus for some designers. I think these days uh, we're seeing there's just an infinite amount of ways for type designers to be inspired. There's even, you know, people can find it from all over. One of my favorite fonts right now, Salvaje, is inspired by Birds of Paradise, like totally from grounded in nature. You know, that's so incredible. So I, yeah, I love the idea of like, if they came up with all of this, you know, during the Industrial Revolution, we probably still have like a fairly big path ahead of us as well. Totally. And I spoke a few episodes back with Dr. Nadine Chaheen. She's one of the foremost experts on Arabic type in the world. And she's kind of paving this whole new path of adapting typefaces uh, in the Arabic language. So, I mean, it's this, it's such an interesting, as you say, kind of new revolution that's happening right now, because who knows where we'll go and with with access to all of this incredible information to be able to design typefaces and do so fairly quickly and easily without tons and tons of heavy duty technology weighing us down as a barrier who knows where we will go it's exciting exactly exactly yeah and exactly Nadine's work is incredible I think even her kind of example of how she's bringing innovation to the typography world is great to see too because you know there's probably plenty of people um that aren't super familiar with the field they're like we got all the fonts we need we're good but then you realize there's so many cultures that are underrepresented in typography and it's it's amazing seeing people do the hard work to make sure that you know they're also brought to the spotlight completely so i have to ask you as well can you speak from how we got from this kind of world of metal type to woodblock in the world of the industrial revolution and just tell us kind of perhaps how how that changed type as we know it yeah um i think that's excellent and something that we also we know the industrial revolution being so important technology wise we kind of think of really fast printing presses but maybe not exactly uh how the actual mechanisms of how type was made was changed um and that was something i found super fascinating so you know in our early typography classes we understand that type originated with you know metal type components i don't know i'm not a super big nerd on those technical parts of it but i think it's something that we can all kind of imagine in our brain so type was cast in metal and you know you put the paper to the metal and you get you know a print um that made total sense and that was kind of uh used for many many centuries and uh you know with what i was saying as with the kind of change in scale so we were talking about how you might not have seen type very large before the industrial revolution um you know with the advent of posters and editorial we're seeing type grow in scale um well if you think about a typeface multiplying their scale by five that's easy enough to think of, but when you think of the physical metal itself trying to multiply itself by five, we have some heavy metal. <laughs> that is um that is no joke. And so, you know, there's a few issues. When you were casting type at larger sizes, um, there was an issue where actually the metal wouldn't cool evenly. And so they were having trouble um, getting things to print in an even matter. Um, and, you know, also the idea of type becoming really heavy made it really cumbersome process and so that led to the innovation of wooden typography as we know it today and wood type wood was you know definitely really durable much lighter and much cheaper than metal um and so that kind of led to this whole new era of wooden type that i think we still 
adore today. I see wood type, you know, revivals all the time. Um, and it also led to an era where people were mixing and matching. So taking their metal type and taking their wood type. And, you know, it was the first time we kind of saw an eclectic mix of typography, which is really exciting, um, where the type really kind of takes on its own beautiful image of itself. Also, I love uh, kind of talking about the idea of font families starting back in this era, too, because, you know, you're trying to fit as much text as possible, maybe in a column, and you had some skinny words and some fat words, and the idea that People want their information to kind of look good because you had to like kind of lock up type in a certain way back then um, led to the innovation of font families because then people could mix and match whatever they needed to communicate what they needed on, you know, maybe a poster or something like that. So, so interesting how those stories intertwine. I hadn't thought of that. The fact that, that yeah, that the font family as we know it, it had to start from somewhere and it makes sense that it had very practical implications or, or reasons why it needed to be that way or why it was why it came to be you had you had condensed letter forms you had wide letter forms and everything in between and that's because in yeah in a printer's lockup uh in in a chase cut to the chase you need to have that's yeah you need to have have letter forms that that fit within there in in a certain way so providing or establishing a font family it makes sense that the letters and the words work together and they, they seem cohesive, but they work within the physical limitations of the printing press and printing process. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think it's interesting because I think even today, though, I'll look when I'm designing packaging or something like that, I always have constrained limitations in some way. There is a box that I have to, you know, make look great. Uh, and if the box is only three inches wide and I have strawberry lemonade to fit on that, I might be using some condensed type. Um, so that tradition certainly still holds true even today, which I think is great. I learned something new. You learn something new every day. <laughs> always. So cool. <laughs> now I have to ask you, Olivia. I have to ask you because it's a little bit of talk, paper, scissors tradition, and I am excited to hear your answer. But if you could choose only one typeface to use for the rest of your life, it's like your desert island typeface, what would you choose and why? Oh my gosh, this is a, t- this is a tough question. Especially because as someone that's so well-versed in type, we all know you can't just use one typeface for everything as, you know, you can't be like a Massimo Vignelli about life. I mean, it wouldn't be very fun. I would choose Cooper Black and it's such an icon. It's such a classic. It is on so many things that have made people smile. It is a goofy little goober (laughs) in the end, like... Uh, there's so many reasons. I recently Vox did this really great history deep dive into Cooper Black and like its ex- existence. Yeah, throughout throughout time. And um, I love the fact that it was made in the 20s. Like it was made in this era of advertising and like, you know, it, and I can't believe it's still around and has been consistently used for decades. And like that makes me confident. If I had to use anything, I could use that. I also think I... Um, during that video that Vox did, they talked about how none of the letter forms have flat bottoms. They're all rounded. And so therefore, it makes it look good when it's in typesetting scenarios that are unconventional. So like you could kind of do maybe a bouncing baseline with your Cooper Black and have letters kind of askew and uh, kind of 
you know, expressed in that certain way and it would look good or you could kind of jumble them up a little bit. And I think because they have such an organic feel to them, I mean, I could go on. I mean, Cooper Black's so warm. It's friendly. It's inviting. Like you, you can convey a message in Cooper Black and, you know, no one's going to think you're being cold or harsh because there's already kind of like this huggableness to the font that I love how like tactile it feels. Um, I love that it's been used on the Beach Boys album, but like also on my ramen noodles packaging. I, I think that Cooper Black is a super um, just timeless font and, you know, I, I can't get enough of it. So that's the one. That's my desert island pick. <laughs> Huggable. Good word. Good descriptor. Thanks. I love that. Well, where can listeners find you if they want to learn more about your podcast and what you do? Where do they go for their nerd alerts? Oh, yes. Um, podcasters can find me at Olivia K Letters. That's my Instagram. And you can find the League Instagram at the League of. And there we kind of post our updates on our, you know, episodes, what we're recording, if we're releasing new typefaces, um, because League of Movable Type is an open source foundry. So it's an excellent source for students if they need uh, type to grab and go and try out. Um, so yeah, that's where you can find us. And we're also on Spotify at the Weekly Typographic Podcast. You're a gem, Olivia. Thank you so much for having <laughs> me. This was such a good time. I can always use a good nerdy type conversation in my life. Uh, me too. Me too. We're, we're two peas in a pod. <laughs> Thanks <Absolutely>. so much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.